Here, Here, the Humanitarian Podcast, a podcast by Here Geneva. Welcome back to Here, Here, the Humanitarian Podcast. My name is Val Hamby Verbruggen. Today, I am once again joined by Balthazar Stalin for the second part of our chat on humanitarian data. At the time of recording, Balthazar was Director of Digital Transformation and Data at the International Committee of the Red Cross. In part one, we discussed the broad strokes of international organizations' data collection practices in the wake of the breach on ICRC servers at the beginning of the year. What data should be collected? How do you ensure that it is collected, stored, and used in a principled manner? We also looked at the influence of national authorities, of GDPR, and other regulatory frameworks. You should be able to follow this episode as a standalone, but we still recommend checking out episode one. Balthazar, thanks so much for coming back. Pleasure. Right, so like last time, maybe let's start by defining terms. You talk about personal data, so what does that mean? And maybe what's the difference between data in general and biometrics? Biometric data is, 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 is a specifically sensitive subset of, of personal data in the sense that it has physical or physiological or even behavioral behavioral data that allows to identify a given person. Okay. So, so it, 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 what comes to mind is typically, you know, iris of your eye or, 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 or facial recognition, uh, data, the, the fingerprints, uh, DNA, where, whereas personal data could be a name on a list. It could be your profession, your age, your health state. So it's information that isn't necessarily underpinned uh, by, by the biometric data. Now, the biometric data is particularly sensitive and we have to be particularly careful because it simply allows also uh, to identify people uh, with with means and methods and automated methods that, that can be particularly easily also used against people. And mm -hmm. I think in this sense, it's the potency means that we have to be particularly careful. There is a number of jurisdictions which recognize that biometric data are so sensitive that we have to be I mean, I'm not talking about the ICSC, I'm talking about countries where they regulate more strictly the use of uh, biometrics data. There are countries, there is a whole debate about, you know, facial recognition, to which extent uh, is that in, in contradiction with, 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 with privacy and should be allowed or is allowed in the public space. So I think uh, it's, it's a technology that is also used for mass surveillance. So it's particularly, I'd say... Um, um, we must be particularly careful to handle it. And why do we have to be particularly careful as a general organization? Because the personal data of people in war zones are often data of people who are in an extreme state of vulnerability and the data could be used against them. Yeah. And sometimes they do not have even a choice to give these data. I mean, there's always a choice, but if you really need certain services and you have to give up your data to get these these services, the whole issue of consent is, of course, different than if I now approve or not the conditions of an application that provides a certain convenience here in, yeah. in, in a peaceful country. But yeah, the consent part is we're we're getting to, we're getting there. It's the yeah, it's there. One of the reproaches that I saw emerging after the the data breach at yeah. ICRC was there was a lot of talk from a lot of different people, not just ICRC but humanitarian practitioners in general where the focus was very much on what should humanitarian organizations be doing. And yeah. the focus was very much from that angle and much less in terms of, well, the data subjects themselves, how do we involve them? It was much more, I think, from a cybersecurity perspective than uh, than than a question of, I guess, accountability. So how 
You mentioned consent. How much wiggle room is there effectively for data subjects to refuse collection if they want to access aid? Is a model where you can access aid and refuse to give up your data a model that can exist? Or is it just completely unfeasible from a logistical standpoint? I think we have to to work to a system where in, in, indeed we, we, we minimize this data harvesting of, of people from an action and, and try to find solutions uh, uh, where at least uh, there is an element of data protection by design. So it's the design of the tools that should minimize the risk exposure to people. And I think that's why uh, we have, for instance, a, a biometrics policy that is on our website that can be looked at that quite severely limits the kind of use cases where we currently use biometrics. If you purely look at what biometrics could do in terms of ease and convenience, we would have pushed biometrics far more to far more use cases than we currently do. But we have currently listed a number of use cases where we accept it. I take, for instance, forensics. Yes, we absolutely accept it that to, 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 to identify mortal remains, we, 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 we use biometric data. Um, if I give an example, it's interesting that we have voluntarily limited the number of use cases and put a, a number of, 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 of guardrails around the use of biometrics through a policy that is also in the public domain. Which hampers our use of bi- hampers our use, which limits, which mm. really severely limits our use of biometrics, and we have to answer because we indeed believe that uh, uh, the risks of biometrics, if used improperly, outweigh the benefits of convenience. Now, when I mentioned earlier research and development, I think we have, and we are doing that. We have to look at uh, solutions and technical solutions, and perhaps try to find technical solutions with academia and, 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 and partners that allow us to, to use uh, some of these tools without typically uh, having a, a centralized repository between the bi- biometric data set and the identity. So there is this whole issue of, of anonymization of, 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 of data that, that allows you to find solutions, but these solutions are not really the ones that you commercially easily find, which would minimize, which would minimize the risk and also minimize the people who afterwards can have access uh, uh, um, to the data. You can, of course, once register a person, but does that mean that the kind of um, access code would then be accessible to whom? Uh, um, uh, typically, if, if, you, if you look at the cash programs, very often the cash programs are also done through uh, national or local telecommunication yeah. companies. So how do you I- ensure that people can have access to it without necessarily system outside of the return system have access to the precise identification of the person? And I think these are these kind of solutions mm. where technical avenues exist, but where you have to be very thoughtful and careful about how you want to use it. Yeah, and I guess also the fact that humanitarian emergencies generally include, uh, well, it's large swaths of population. The sheer volume also makes it difficult to just rush into a technical solution, right? So, But I think we have seen organizations that have heavily invested into biometrics but don't have a policy, and they certainly 
in a, in a way wake up <clears throat> and realize that they sit on very large quantities of data set and realize that it, it becomes now more and more an issue of debate that they are accountable and that they have to in a way explain according to which rules they have these data, how they manage them, and, and that's a conundrum. Yeah. On the other hand, we also have to accept that if we are thoughtful about some of these technologies, we don't fully exploit these technologies in terms of convenience, cost efficiencies, ease of use. So, so there, is a, there is a balance to be struck. And yeah. the question of digital literacy, yeah. how is that something that you can work around? Or factor in, I'm not entirely sure what term is more appropriate, but how do, you, mean, how do you factor in the lack of digital literacy, essentially, in terms of when it comes to, uh, to data collection and management? I think we, we, you have different, uh, you have different, probably um, clusters of, of, of issue around digital literacy. You have, of course, uh, a first issue, which is how literate are you as, as an organization, which means, in a way, how how do you do you understand the technology you use? Do you have the right people who who make the right technology choices? En connaissance de cause, understanding, you know, the risks and opportunities uh, to, to, to make these choices. And do you have a staff that can use these technologies in a responsible way? And I think cybersecurity comes to mind, of course. Yeah. Sorry, uh, I meant from the data subject now, perspective. So, so that's a very important one, to, which, which has an impact on, on, on the data subject. Because mm, if, if, as an organization, you don't manage these technologies and deploy them well, it, it, it has an adverse impact on the data subject. The issue of the data subject is a particularly difficult one because it's true that uh, the issue of informed consent that is uh, uh, um, part of data protection that people in a way data subjects have a free choice is very often in a humanitarian setting um, not fully implementable. A, because people very often, as you mentioned beforehand, do not have that much uh, the, the, the choice and often feel simply obliged to, to give the data to have the service that is survival critical, but be also uh, that they may not have uh, the understanding of what happens. And that is a heightened responsibility for the humanitarian actors that even if the data subject may not fully understand the implications, you have in a way uh, uh, to take a, a, a posture that you try to, to propose solutions that are in the best interest of, of the persons. But I mean the understanding of the implications, let's face it. Uh, I think someone calculated how long it would take to read all the conditions and rules and conditions of the different applications. It would take months and months and months. And all of us, I think, routinely scroll down on, on sort of 20 pages of, of, of just, conditions and rules. Yeah, just click. I have read and all, I have read it. And we have very rarely uh, a good understanding of where our data goes. And we accept it because it's perhaps our privacy is, is infringed upon, perhaps we are milked for data that is used for commercial purposes, but it's no risk. In, in a war zone, of course, it can be a risk for people. And that's where I would sort of say part of what, part of the responsibility that perhaps in a peaceful country is placed on the shoulders of the data subjects in a, in, in, in a situation of vulnerability, tension, war, it's actually the organization that have to embrace this responsibility and sort of say, even if data subjects may not totally un understand the implications, we must understand the implications and we should try to be as responsible and ethical in the use of our technology as possible. And so all of this is kind of what happens in the, this is, what's the phrase? This is all a priori, but then a posteriori in cases like the breach that happened here. 
do you think there's a way to better include pe- the data subjects whose data has been stolen? So I know in the case of ICRC, you mentioned in the last episode that you'd reached out to them via national societies so that they were informed. But do you think that there's a a more active role that they can play, even if it's just in terms of saying, actually, I would like to retract my data based on the fact that it has been, it's not as safe as I thought it was, I would like it deleted, but maybe there's another kind of area where they have a role to play. I, I think it's part of our data protection rules that indeed people can also ask for the deletion of their data, but it's true, this is a, it's, it's a right that people theoretically could activate, but in reality, I think we have had very few people, if any, who, who sort of write to us, please delete the data. I'm, I'm, I'm not sure to which extent um, it would be easy to really um, um, have that discussions with the millions of people you, you try to assist and protect in, 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 in war zones, if I take the example of the ICSC. So um, um, uh, p- part of what we try to do is at least be transparent on how we go about it including when we stumble or, or when we get hit. Uh, and, and you mentioned the stolen data. We don't know whether it was stolen or not. We must simply presume or at least think of the worst case and communicate accordingly. We don't know whether it, whether it was stolen or copied, exfiltrated, yeah, but we exactly. fear part of it or all of it was stolen. So it's, it's true. It's, a, it's, 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 of course, uh, something... Um, that, that, that we must uh, that we must face. So, I, I believe we have to um, uh, try to make that clearly known to all the people we, we we protect and assist around the world. We seek to protect and assist around the world, but it's difficult to have these conversations. I think with the, the number of people. So, what we do is, of course, also to engage with communities, with data protection experts. Uh, we, we organize trainings and there you have people uh, from various communities who come and, and, and I was really particularly positively impressed when we recently uh, also, for instance, organized training courses for data protection, on data protection, the, the number of national societies, Red Cross and Red Crescent societies that were so engaged and so interested in data protection. Uh, and I really believe, I mean, there are so many also other issues and challenges and to see the interest uh, of, of our partners from the Red Cross and the Red Crescent movement to, to be trained to think through these issues was, was, was really heartening. And, and in this sense, I think there is a, a great appetite and the national societies are very close to their communities because by definition, national Red Cross and Red Crescent societies are, are close uh, to their communities. But I don't think we could today say that we have in the internal sector a really structured dialogue with the data subjects in war zones or natural disasters on these issues. Okay. Um, I mean, that's time almost up. I don't know if you want to add anything else um, linked to anything that we discussed. Perhaps, perhaps I just would like to, 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 to underline that for us, uh, humanitarian action is, of course, acceptance-based, essentially, and hinges on the trust of people. And um, I I believe that in order to be trustworthy in tomorrow's world, being able to show demonstrably that you do whatever you can, that 
data is not used to harm the people you try to protect and assist will be absolutely critical for us. It's really a strategic, it's a strategic um, intent that, that we have and that we will pursue in spite of now having been hit by a very sophisticated attack. Uh, and and in, in this sense, I think it's, it's, we need to double down on our ambition to really be able to, to protect the data that, that, we, that we have on people. And I would encourage the whole human sector uh, to, to do likewise. And, and also, I believe part of the trust is, is, is a great transparency about what you try to do, but also sometimes uh, when you are hit uh, by such an event, also to, to admit it that, that you have been hit and that your data has been breached. I think that creates trust. And I was actually surprised that uh, how, in a way, positive people reacted to the fact that we were so transparent about it, because it's, of course, something that is very difficult to do or to stand there and sort of say yes you have suffered an attack it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a very difficult moment for us but, but our, our main concern goes to the people whose data potentially has been breached great well and on that note Balthazar thank you so much again for sitting down with me for part two Thank you for tuning in to this episode of Hear Hear, the humanitarian podcast. This podcast is available on Spotify or YouTube. To find out more about our work, please visit hear-geneva.org, follow us on Twitter or LinkedIn at Hear Geneva, or subscribe to our YouTube channel.